Hello, everybody. This is Mark Kumar, your lifestyle entrepreneur and proud founder of Simple Podcast Cloud, a platform for podcasters to host your audio. And today's podcast is going to be amazing, amazing podcaster. He's going to be sharing with you some amazing things that is going to revolutionize the way you do podcasting and share some tips and secrets that will help you take your podcaster to a next level. So without any further ado, please take your time to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, my name is William Wally. Uh, that buildup got me a little nervous at this point. I've really got to bring my A game now. Um, like I said, my name is William Wally. Uh, I've been podcasting for a grand total. Uh, next Friday will be seven months. Uh, I'm sitting, I think I checked my numbers this morning. I was sitting at about 4,500 downloads. Um, yeah, I'm in about, which I, what shocks me is with little to no actual buildup. Like I, I thought about it for quite a while about doing one. Didn't do a lot of build up for it. Just told a few friends and family. And then the next week I just started it with no hoopla. And like I said, seven months later, I'm at about 4,500 downloads. Uh, I've got listenership and in, uh, including the U.S. in 20 countries and in 33 states here in the U.S. So I am uh, I'm beyond shocked and I'm beyond blessed. So hey, hey, man, I just want to first of all congratulate you on that one and that big Woohoo for you! <laughs> you know that's exciting. So, so what, first of all, what is your podcast about? All right. Uh, first of all, the title of my podcast is World of Wally. Um, it started off as a, in, in a concept in my head of um, because I had such a diverse background, uh, different vocational um, endeavors that I had done, and people were always asking me about jobs that I actually you know did stuff I did on my jobs. I said, you know, it'd be cool to be able to put that down, you know, record it for history, I guess is what you could call it. And uh, the funny thing is I'm seven months in and I've only had a chance to share probably just a couple of my actual like crazy stories from some of the different um, work endeavors I've had. Um, it's, it's turned into a lot more um, of like interview style. I mean, I, this whole, uh, I'm in my second season now and I, um, like 90 95% of my stuff is interview based. Now, I'm a pretty relaxed interview guy. I mean, I'm not a Q&A kind of guy. I don't pop a question and wait on them to answer me. Um, my philosophy has always been if somebody goes to the trouble of taking time out of their busy schedule to talk to me, a podunk country boy from Columbia, Mississippi, you know, the least I can do is give them as much time of my show as they need. And, uh, and that's been a pretty successful formula to this point, so. Oh man, that is awesome. I would love to hear one of your interesting stories if you could share it. That would be well, awesome. Well, um, like I said, I've, I've had so many people um, ask me, I've been really fortunate. Most of the jobs I've had, you would consider interesting or some people would consider interesting. For example, uh, all, off and on all together, I worked about 14 years in the corrections industry. So I've seen a lot of when they say stuff about war stories, when you, uh, the, the, the old line used to be when we'd go to work, you know, the only difference between us and the inmates was we got to go home every night or we got to go home every day, depending on what your shift was. Um, and, you know, I, I had a lot of folks ask me about that and, and I wanted to share those kind of stories. Uh, I've also worked in what's called event uh, security and management. Um, if you've ever gone to any type of sporting event or, um, or any type of venue based event, that is who event security, you know, it's, they're called a lot of things, guest services, stuff like that. 
but uh, I got an opportunity to work here in the southeastern region. Um, now, in New York, you don't understand how important stuff like college football is. Like, like I said, you're from New York. You have to root for teams like Rutgers and the Ivy League and, well, Penn State maybe. You know, Penn State's kind of decent up there. But in the SEC, Southeastern Conference, it, it is it is life. And that's why this pandemic's kind of got us all, you know, shaking because we, we don't get any sports down here. But uh, I worked uh, with a company called Event Operations Group for about six and a half years, and that's what I did. I worked at pretty much every major venue in the Southeast. We had contracts in the state of Mississippi, the state of Alabama, the state of Florida, you know, in Georgia and Tennessee, places like that. So I got a chance to walk into what good old Southern boys like me would call the meccas of college football. You know, I was the University of Alabama, Mississippi State University, um, you know, old, the, what we call old Miss, University of Mississippi, which is referred to as Old Miss down here. Um, we had a contract at Georgia State, I mean, uh, at Georgia Tech. I got a chance to go to the McCarran Center and work events there. And, you know, Georgia Tech basketball is a big deal. So um, it's just crazy. I mean, um, and concerts and festivals, if you're a music person, you know, I, I used to, people used to tell me all the time, man, you got the greatest job in the world. Uh, because I got to go to a lot of concerts and festivals and stuff, you know, didn't pay anything. I actually got paid to be there. And um, it was just wild. I mean, um, I don't know, you, you being in New York, you might not even know about uh, one of the biggest festivals um, in this area is based out of a place called Gulf Shores, Alabama, and it was called a Hangout Festival. Well, we were the very first company. When it first originated, we were the very first company to provide security for them. And I saw really young people, college-age college age lunatics, uh, use a lot of stuff they shouldn't have, a lot of illegal substances, and it, you know, they paid for it in the end. Um, you know, I, I got a chance to see a guy try to ride a 20-foot-tall pink pony, uh, ceramic statue. Um, we had a guy that was almost swept up in what they call the sweeper, which is a machine they use on the beach after stuff like this to clean the beach, you know, to get all the, you know, debris up. Uh, he had passed out and was almost, you know, engulfed by it. Uh, we stopped it just in. We, we saw the guy stop it just in time. Um, we had a guy that was strung out on some type of illegal narcotics, and uh, he actually was trying to swim home, is what he said, but he was on dry ground. He was actually on asphalt. So, um, you know, that's that, and that became kind of commonplace. You know, that's the kind of stuff I ran into. Uh, you know, down here in the deep south, NASCAR is a huge thing. Now, I'm not a huge NASCAR fan, but I work quite a few events. Uh, Talladega Super Speedway is, you know, that's 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 the southern mecca of, of the actual NASCAR. And uh, I got a chance to work quite a few events there. Got to see a lot of crazy, insane things there also. Um, and then, of course, in the corrections industry, you know, I saw stuff I'll never be able to forget. I, I can't, I, I still sometimes have nightmares about some of the stuff I saw in the corrections industry. So, um, you know, just the depravity of, of humankind, you know, when you, when a human being is locked away for a certain period of time, they either gravitate to it and they become part of it or they just break down. I mean, it's, it's like a car after so many years, it just starts breaking down. And I just saw, you know, their mental capacity would be diminished. Uh, you know, a lot of them that were being incarcerated, needed to be on some form of medication before they came in and then they were, you know, diagnosed after the fact. It's just crazy stuff. I mean, I've, I've witnessed stuff like, um, and then I'll give you 
a prime example of just the common uh, common occurrence that we would see. Uh, we had a guy that was trying to prove that he was insane. He was going to trial uh, on a rape charge of a very small child, and he had been told by another inmate, his cellmate, his cell is, you know, as they refer to him, as um, you know, kind of what could we do well, what can I do to you know make myself either look better or look worse? You know, because you want to really want to look good in front of the judge, you want to really want to look bad. So, and this guy suggested to him that he actually store up his feces and then um, either use it against the guards, which I've had plenty of feces and urine and stuff thrown at me in the past. Um, I've had I've had tray, actual serving trays, plastic serving trays lit on fire and thrown at me. Um, just insane stuff. But this particular guy, to prove he was insane, or he was trying to prove he was insane, he would actually take the uh, the bread that was provided in some of the meals, and he took his feces and put it inside the bread and ate it like a sandwich, like you would a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So, and he did it on multiple occasions in an effort to try to prove just Yes, that's the, that's the kind of reaction. I see your reaction. That's the kind of reaction I get a lot of times when I tell a story like that. So, uh, I mean, that's just something that they do. I mean, they, they're, they're really bad about self-mutilating themselves when they're trying to get something accomplished or they're trying to get their way or they're, they want to get moved from one area of a correctional area, you know, like a, a penitentiary or, or even a local jail. They try to get moved, so they do stupid stuff. They cut themselves. They they purposely get into fights. Um, it's it's just crazy. Um, I had a guy one night that was a previous offender. He had been convicted by the state of Mississippi, and he couldn't be housed in certain areas because of his status. Um, so we put him in a segregated lockdown area by himself. He wanted to be in with his you know his homeboys. He wanted to be in with his guys. And I had explained to him, look, man, because I was a shift sergeant at that time over that, that group. I said, look, man, I said, give me 20 minutes. Let me get on the phone with the sheriff. And if the sheriff signs off on it, I'll move you. Well, about 10 minutes later, he's banging on the window, you know, between the two buildings. And he sticks his arm up to the, to the window. And there's blood. Like, I can see he's got blood smeared all over the window. So we go. You know, we go in, we, we take care of the situation. Um, I had a brand new, I'll never forget this. I had a brand new officer. I mean, his very first night to work corrections in his life. And um, he was kind of shadowing me. I didn't want to put him in a situation that, you know, he could get injured or, or hurt or manipulated in any way. So he's shadowing me. We go down, I grab the keys to the actual, because in this, you actually had to have a physical key to unlock these cells. So I get the key, I go down and unlock the, the cell. The officer standing just to my right. I swing the door open and sitting in the doorway, I, I mean literally in the doorway, in the threshold of the door, on a milk crate that had been left in there, which shouldn't have been, but, but you know, something else shouldn't have been in there, but it was in there. He's sitting on a milk crate like he's sitting out in front of the country store and blood streaming down his arm, like it's running off his fingertips. And he rotates his arm to show me that he had cut himself on the inner part of his arm. And when I say cut himself, he, he took, um, they get what's called an intake bag that has certain things, razors and towels and soap and stuff like that when they first are brought in. Well, instead of 
them searching the bag properly because he was a previous cutter, you know, he'd done it before. Okay. That razor that we gave him should have been taken out of it, a little disposable razor like you find at any dollar store. He had broken the blade out of it and he took the blade and he started at the fold of his elbow on the inner part of his arm and he cut almost a perfect straight line all the way to his where his wrist actually rotates and he cut it deep enough that um the only way i can explain it is he cut it deep enough he cut through enough of the layers of this outer you know the outer skin that um if you ever see bacon that's been sitting out on the counter for a while it kind of takes that curl up effect well that's what his skin had done he cut it deep enough that it had curled up like curled outward and you could literally like i could see like the his veins crossing like if he would have cut just a little bit deeper i'd have been calling the morgue instead of an ambulance because he'd have bled to death before so we call i, I tell the officer standing beside me officer and i'm not gonna call his name to protect the innocent i said i said call you know the tower which is the main control area call the tower and tell them get an ambulance out here asap well he doesn't move he doesn't flinch i looked to my right i said officer you know whoever i said who i said call it call it well he finally is able to get his radio to his mouth and he calls it but because of the area of the building sometimes it blocks the signal so he stepped out into the hallway to call it again and he got about halfway through it and i heard him stop and i looked down the hall and he's wobbling like he's he's uh back in my day i'm 50 years old back in my day it was called the the weeble wobbles you've seen the little toys from fisher price he was he was weeble wobbling and the next thing i know he goes down like he passes out in the hallway so i close the door i tell the inmate i'm coming back i close the door lock it up i go out to check on him of course he's he's green i mean he's he looks like he's been at sea for for a week and he's seasick uh, i get him i sit him up he's trying to get air he's about to fall out on me again you'll pass out again so I'm, I'm dealing with two medical situations here i got an officer that i'm not sure what his medical history is i got an inmate that has tried to literally cut his arm off so i call another officer the the guy that was directly under me which is called the oic which is officer in charge he's kind of the shift number two he comes across from the other side because he was dealing with a situation on our county side which is the jail part he comes across he helps me get the other officer up in a seated position on the bench we're getting him air we're getting him water he says i, I think i'm okay boss i think i'm okay so he stands back up to call on the radio again and he actually gets it called out this time and then he goes down again like he falls to his knees and falls off on his side and we stand him back up we sit him back down so we finally get an ambulance no no the ambulance is going to be delayed for a few minutes so then i had to call every, you know something like that happens i had to call everybody I had to call the chief of security I had to call the warden I had to call the deputy warden i had to call everybody on the building you know everybody but the president of the united states felt like i had to call that night so we they authorized the off the, the oic my number two to load him up in one of our vans and actually take him to the hospital the local hospital so he takes off with him and uh about 15 20 minutes later my officer calls me gives me an update 
tells me, look, they're, they're, they're going to stitch him up. They gave him some numbing medication. They're going to stitch him up. About, I guess about 20 minutes later, it might not have been 20 minutes later. It might have been 15 minutes later. I get another call, same officer. I said, what's going on, man? He goes, look, the medication's wearing off. The doctor wants to know, do you need to give him more? You know, he's got three, you know, three or four more stitches he's got to drop in his arm. And the problem was it was getting down near the wrist part, which would be, you know, a pretty tender area. I said, look, man, I said, I'm not authorizing another dollar on this guy. I said, we're already, you know, so many dollars, you know, so many, it's like, I want to say the bill is like $5,000 to get this guy fixed. I said, I'm not authorizing it. And I know the deputy warden or the warden's not going to authorize it either. He said, okay, well, I said, stitch him up. I said, leave me on the phone though, because I want to hear this. And I could tell every time the doctor drug a stitch through his arm because he was screaming like a child. So we finally get him back to the, the facility. And you know, ironically, I don't hear another peep out of him the rest of the night. He's just so glad to be back to the to the prison where he can lay down. So I we lay you know, he we I did actually move him to the other area, even though he did what he did. And I had told him, I said, look, me and you both could have saved a lot of time and trouble tonight if you'd have just given me 15 minutes to solve your problem. So that's, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say that happened every night I went to work or every day I went to work. But, I mean, there's been quite a few times that I've come home and had to throw the shirt away because my wife couldn't wash the blood out of it. So, I mean, that's just a typical correction story. Um, and I was so amazed when I got the opportunity I was trying to get out of corrections. And um, like I said, I, I don't know like your background. Uh, I don't know about your faith or religion or anything like this, but I, but I had been praying for months to get out of corrections. Lord, just anything, I'll, I'll do anything. And I had an opportunity. I'd been doing a little part-time work in this event security I was talking about. And the big boss, the main man of the company, actually showed up in an event that we were working. And he saw my work ethic and he saw how I was able to handle myself in conflict. And he said, you know what? He said, I got a spot for you. He said, if you can give me one month, he said, I got a spot I want to put you in. And I ended up going to work for him. I started off as a part-time, just a part-time associate. I went from part-time associate to a uh, assistant regional manager, part-time assistant regional manager, to the regional manager, still a part-time capacity because it was a part-time contract, to a full-time regional manager, to a full-time regional director with this company within about seven months. So I got, I really was afforded a lot of opportunities, especially in that field. And I got a chance to go to a lot of places. You know, we worked rock shows on cruises we work you know nascar races we work college football college basketball festivals and just all kind of crazy stuff um like i said i i got too many stories if i got started on that we'd have to do like a five-hour mini series because i got so many stories on that that i'd actually have to bring some of my buddies in and let them actually give their their actual account what they can remember of it because some of my buddies that i work with with that company were usually in no condition to be doing what they needed to be doing when they got into trouble that they got into. But like I said, I'm gonna protect the instant by not calling any names on that. But um, 
the one thing that I, I, I really, really enjoyed about that job, and like I said, six and a half years, it was extremely uh, taxing physically and mentally, and I was never at home. Like, I was always on the road. That's that's what got to me. That's why I eventually had to step away, because I just, I was missing, I was missing time with my wife. I was missing time watching my, my kids growing up. Like, I, when I started with them, my son was in the sixth grade, and when I left them and took another job, he was three months away from graduating high school. So, I mean, I missed a large chunk of my my kids growing up. And um, now I, I would, I'll never regret taking that job because I learned so much and I was able to do a lot of things, uh, able to meet an amazing amount of people. And that's the funny thing is, is I guess when my podcast started, that's kind of was kind of the inspiration of my podcast because I had met so many people and I thought, man, I would – love to share these stories. And if I got really fortunate, maybe I could get back in contact with some of these folks and actually, uh, you know, maybe get them on the show, which would be really amazing. I'm, I'm not at the, look, I'm not at the Mark Kumar level. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get there. You know, I'm not, I'm not that, I'm not the Joe right now. I, I did say this the other day, a guy asked me, he said, man, what, what do you like? What inspires you to do a podcast? I said, well, I was, I'm a big Joe Rogan guy. Um, and I listened, I was listening to Joe Rogan back before podcast was even a term. Like, you know, podcast is a pretty relatively new term. They were doing it. We just didn't call it that. And, uh, and I, my goal is to kind of be, I, I'd love to reach Joe Rogan's level. I don't think I ever will, but I'd love to. Uh, and, and, I'm, and I try to be a lot cleaner version of Joe Rogan. And I, no disrespect to him. Joe Rogan is an amazing interviewer and I love his show content, but I try to, to just a portion of that. If I could just do, if I could just achieve a 30 or 40 percentile of that and just be a little cleaner in my presentation. You know, I have guests that have refused to come on my show because, you know, I asked them not to be profane um, because I don't know. I think it was in the, the, the bio information I sent you. I'm trying to present a content and a product that the common man and common woman can sit down even with their children and listen to and not be offended by it. And listen, in this society, it's hard not to say something or do something to offend somebody. So, but I mean, you, like I said, you probably know that better than I do, because like I said, I'm not on your level yet. You're, you're, man, only the only thing I could tell you right about now, I don't care what level you currently are, the yeah. way you tell stories I'm like, I feel like I'm right next to you. I swear. I told somebody, I've always, uh, coming up through school, I, I wasn't a real big fan of school. I, I, I'm not going to say I didn't like school. I liked being able to go to school because if I was at school, then I didn't have, you know, my mom and dad didn't have stuff at home for me to do. Like I could avoid, you know, chores and stuff, you know, because I'm old enough, we used to do chores. But uh, I just... I used to love to read a lot and, uh, and I, and I guess I've, I've just read so much stuff and seen so many presentations, you know, I don't, I don't consider myself a really good orator. I don't consider myself a really good storyteller. I mean, I, I can tell stories, but I don't, if I listen to my, I would not find myself as, as compelling a storyteller. If I was listening to myself, I guess is the best way to explain that. 
Now I've had people tell me, man, I could just, man, you're, I could just sit and listen to you tell these stories all day long. And then of course I also get, and we joked about this before we got started because I asked you about, you were from New York and you said, is it that evident with the accent? A lot of my reviews, like especially on Apple, people will review my stuff and go, man, I love that freaking accent you got, man. I'm like, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't, they said, uh, some, some guy asked me one time on my Facebook page, he sent me a message. He said, man, how'd you work on that accent so good? I said, dude, I've been working on this accent my whole life. So, uh, you know, I just, I came out of the womb talking like this. I hadn't changed it at all. So. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. Like I said, I don't know what I can say other than the way you tell your story and the way you articulate it step by step and also in a vivid picture format. I felt like the prison story you were just telling, I felt like I was right there with you. you, you I know exactly. You know, the scary thing is, is, is uh, and that's been quite a few years removed now. And I'll, I'll still, like I talked about, you know, I wanted out of corrections so bad because I've saw, I saw stuff in corrections that I, you want. it's like, I'll never, I'll never compare working in the corrections industry to going to war. Cause I have the utmost respect for the soldiers and the, and the military. And I know they see a lot of stuff. that's a lot worse than I'll ever see. Yep. But I, I still see that stuff. Like I'll just, just a random whatever you know i i actually was walking through a mall here i guess back before the pandemic uh, just before it started or it kind of kicked into full effect and uh i just smelled like i caught a, a whiff of something a scent and it took me back like 18 years to an instant i had you know where a guy you know took a, a scouring brick like you clean a grill with and threw it at the ceiling and actually broke off the the um, receptacle where the actual sprinkler system works and uh, that chlorine there was so much chlorine being forced out in that water that's you know that smell was so intense and of course there was two guys in there we were keeping in there separated while we were interviewing them because I was um, we were doing a, a it was a part of a like a gang reassignment type deal you know you can't have certain affiliations can't be housed together because they will literally kill each other. Right. And uh, we were trying to separate them to get some questioning done. And the guy was throwing a fit and he busted it. So I had one of the trustees, which is one of the, you know, the trusted inmates. And that's a loaded word there, trusted inmates. You should never trust any inmate, no matter how long they've been there. Um, I had them go to the laundry and take towels and shove them under the doors so it wouldn't leak into the hallway. Well, then when the water got up about between knee deep and waist deep, you know, this guy suddenly was like, hey, man, I, just shut it off, man. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, let's let it. So I let it get almost to waist deep before we actually went and killed the system. Um, the amazing thing is, is it only took to go from the floor level to waist deep only took about seven minutes. So I was amazed at the amount of water that that system put out in seven minutes time. So, but, you know, and it was just that. I just caught a whiff of it and it took me back like, you know, 17, 18 years to that instant. I thought about it just like a flashback. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I don't know, man. Yeah, I, man. I, I will say this when I got out of it and I moved on to do other things, uh, like, like I said, when I was doing event security, I mean, I got a chance to, um, like, I'm, I'm a huge Green Bay Packer fan. Okay. Well, while I work for them, while I work, I know, I know, while I work for them, I got the opportunity to meet Aaron Rodgers. 
I got an opportunity to meet Bart Starr. I got an opportunity to meet, uh, I, I got a chance to meet every living Green Bay quarterback. The only one I did not get a chance to meet was Lynn Dickey, which is from back like 75 to 80, somewhere in that range. And, um, and like I said, you know, I got a chance to sit with Bart Starr and talk to him about playing in the very first two Super Bowls. I mean, how crazy is that? You know, I, I remember spending um, – and there, there's a venue in Orange Beach, Alabama called The Wharf, and it's a pretty interesting. It's about a 5,000-seat open-air amphitheater. It's huge in this area from a concert standpoint. And – we were working a show, and it was some retro acts, and it was a, a, the group. Actually, was the group ZZ Top. Now, I don't, I don't know how old you are. You probably do know who ZZ Top is, though. You're familiar with with the name. You do not. I do not. ZZ Top was a was a three man band from the little state of Texas that was immensely popular in the '70s and the up through the middle '80s. They were huge, and they're still, you know still well recognized they're just not as you know and um billy gibbons one of the is one of the greatest guitar rock guitarists that has ever lived and i got a chance to sit one night after an event with him because i was actually over that back area of the you know the, the backstage area and while everything was being broken down all that we had to stay to make sure nothing was taken or anything i got a chance to sit you know that evening in just a couple of lounge chairs out by his little uh, camper thing he was in and we just chatted about the world about you know I'm he's asking me a thousand questions about me and I'm like finally I stopped him I said sir I said do you first of all do you realize who you are you are Billy Gibbons you're one of the greatest rock guitarists has ever lived he goes yeah he said I wake up every morning as Billy Gibbons though he said, I'm not really interested in me. I know all about me. He said, tell me more about you, though. And I'm like, that's the kind of stuff. It's just crazy stories. I'm like, Billy Gibbons wants to know about me. Um, you know, I had Aaron Rodgers that had come to the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss, for, I mean, just a random trip because his brother was playing in a football game there. And, of course, you know, he tried to sit with, the, with I call them the normal people. He tried to sit with normal fans. You know, you're Aaron Rodgers. You can't sit in the stands with, with people. They're going to harass you. So we pulled him and his girlfriend at that time, which was not Danica Patrick, but it was another little supermodel of some kind. I don't remember. And his parents were there. We pulled all of them out of the bleachers, um, brought them to my office where they could, you know, so they wouldn't get mobbed when the game was over. I actually brought him down to field level so he could watch the last couple of drives that his brother had, uh, which he was, you know, very thankful for that. But we just, after the event started breaking down, I'm in the office with him, making sure nobody's bothering him, and my guys are out there finishing everything up, the paperwork and everything. And he and I are just talking like we've known each other forever. And it, what was so crazy about it is an hour and a half, you know, he probably spent an hour and a half in my office. When we finally got them out and got them to their vehicles and got them on their way, it hit me. I'm like, I just spent like an hour and a half with Aaron Rodgers, and that guy was talking to me like we've known each other forever. Like he was genuinely curious about you know stuff we had going on. Like he he was he went on his radio show the following Tuesday and thanked you know my company for the you know the way they handled the situation. Called myself and then my my supervisor happened to be there 
called myself and her by name on his radio show. And, you know, it's just moments you can't, I mean, I couldn't have ever, you know, when I was 15 years old, I could never have imagined, you know, something like that happening. So, um, so I joke all the time, you know, that I'm, you know, they, they would say, man, you're, you're almost famous. No, I'm not almost famous. I'm very fortunate. So, um, that's just how it is. You know, I, what, I what is, be, what well, is see, your to, what is your damn secret to being famous? I, well, I, I, don't, I, don't know. I don't know. I just don't know. I mean, I um, I will say this. I think the biggest thing that ever happened um, when I was in high school, when I was in middle school and high school. I was not. Um, I was not a popular kid. I was not. Uh, I was not in all the the different school organizations. I didn't run for anything. You know, I played sports because, you know, every, every guy in the South, well, used to, every guy in the South used to play some type of sports. So I was a football and baseball guy. So, I mean, I had my, my buddies on the football field or the baseball field, but I never was, you know, one of the guys. And then um, the start of my 10th grade year, I was at a private school here locally, and I just made the decision that I'm leaving this private school, I'm going to public school, I'm going to start over, and and I did. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget. My mom, it seems like she cried for three weeks when I told her I was changing schools because they had put so much time and effort into me going to school at this private school, which for, you know, middle class you know, parents, it was expensive. You know, they were having to work hard to, to send me and my brother there. And and I, I tried to be smart about it. I said, look, look at all the money I'm going to save you. And that didn't work either. She still cried. Now, my dad was pretty excited about not having to send him all that money every month. So I ended up going to public school. Uh, I, I, I started my 10th grade year at private school, but then I, about six weeks in, I changed to the public school. And I'll be honest with you, till Christmas of that 10th grade year, it was not, I, I was second guessing my decision. And then I started making a few friends and and they could look past, we, you know, we were talking about this, I was talking about this earlier about, you know, offending folks and the society we live in. Look, back, even back then, and this was in the 80s, you know, because I, I graduated in 1987. Uh, even in the 80s, man, a private school kid was looked down upon by public school kids and vice versa, you know, because private school kids thought public school kids were, you know, just, you know, a bunch of punks, that, you know, hillbillies or whatever. And and then, of course, when a private school kid showed up at the public school, oh, I, I caught flack. Um, I had people that had issues with me because I came from private school. I had people that had issues with me because I was a white guy. I had people that, you know, came up to me because they didn't like the clothes I wore. I mean, all kind of just insane stuff. Um, and I, that used to blow my mind. And now I look at the society we live in now and a lot less than that offends a lot more people now. Um, so I don't know, but then, like I said, about Christmas, I started making some friends just before we went to Christmas break. And then after Christmas, it kind of changed. I started being invited to some parties and stuff and, you know, going to some places I probably shouldn't have gone to, but I was sowing the wild oats as they, they call it down here where I'm from. And I, and I did a lot of stuff my 10th and 11th grade year that now I'm pretty ashamed of, but it got me into that click, or at least that, that, it got me where I thought I wanted to be. And then I, I look back on that and I go, man, I was an idiot. But it got me into 
I was the po I was in that popular group for a short period of time. And and the one thing it did do, it built my confidence level because listen, man, if if you to if if my 15 year old self was sitting here right now, me and you wouldn't be talking. There's no way I'd be on here talking to you about anything. Cause I was just, I did, I had zero self-confidence. Um, but I went to the public school. I changed everything about me. I changed my image. I, I, I got the braces and fixed the teeth. I changed the hairstyle, changed the clothes, changed the kicks. I mean, I rolled up in there day one with the original Air Jordans. I thought I was the bomb. Yeah, the original Air Jordans. I'm talking about them ugly black, white, and red ones. The ugliest shoe ever made, and I thought I was a pimp wearing them things. So that's what kind of kick-started it. And then when I got to college, my confidence just increased and increased and increased. And, and then I, I learned something. You should never meet a stranger. Like me and you, if we weren't for this right here, you and I would have never met. But you opened up something on Facebook. I responded to it, and now we're sitting there talking to each other. Um, that's that's kind of my, my that's my concept for life at this point, you know. So on my podcast, I'm the same way. I don't I don't care how my uh, faith or my ideology or my uh, way of life is. I am open to sit and have a a civil conversation with anybody that comes on my show. And I will let them state their opinions and I will let them uh, get their viewpoint across if they will do it in the same amount of respect I extend them. And they also, if they come on my show, and especially when it gets to like a political issue, look, I don't have an issue with you talking politics on my show. I've done it myself, but I also have facts to back it up. I never say anything that I have not fact checked myself. And if, if they'll do that, man, I'm all for it. I love a beautiful healthy debate and um like i said and every now and then i'll mix a story in there you know something crazy you know like a dude trying to slice his arm off or something you know what i'm saying every now and then i'll just throw a story in there cutting somebody you know whatever it's fine well, i mean that story's funny now it was pretty you know, it was pretty impressive back then because it's like this dude literally tried to cut his arm off so but you know now it's funny i mean the funny thing is i know the guy i actually knew the guy uh, until he got kicked out of school he and i were actually in school together and um and hey, we've known each other for years and we were running, we still run into each other on the street because I live in a small community and I run into him every now and then and he still shows me the scar and we laugh about it. So, you know, Hey, if you can, if you can take 36 stitches in your arm, trying to get moved from one cell to another, I got, you got my utmost respect. I'm just telling you. so. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, uh, what is really interesting about that story I find is that fact that, us as human beings, we can push ourselves to a limit never in the wildest dream that someone else can imagine. But push comes to shove. We are born for this. We are ready for this. And we are willing to do it. That's what I got out of that story. Yep. Like, wow. Like, yeah, I'm all, and I don't, know, um, I don't know if it's the entire society, but I have noticed after you cage an individual up for a while, their level of um, of want to usually increases to the point of insanity because they will do anything to get what they want. Um, right. Like I said, I mean, I've I wa I watched a guy 
uh, actually dislocate his shoulder against a wall in a actual housing unit just to get moved out to the infirmary because he had been told that, you know, you're not waking up in the morning, you know, that kind of stuff. So this dude tried to break his own shoulder just to get out of the, the housing zone. Wow. I mean, we caught it on, like, we caught it on video, like him slamming his shoulder into the wall. Wow. So, that, that's yeah. incredible. Well, I mean, hey, if, if, if I say, hey, Mark, you ain't going to make it to daylight, you might do something just that crazy. I might, I might, or well, depending on the person, depending on the person, yeah, the person is right. So I might be like, if I love myself so much, but like, I want to save my life. And that's that. That's one mindset, right? Another one would be like, I'm done with my life, whatever, you know, depending on the individual <laughs> mentality wise, I would think like some people in it, especially that's like, true. go ahead. Can, can I just yeah. say one, one more thing? Uh, just like, depending on the, like, you know, you could be in a prison and it's, that concept was fine. And then people in here, they go to nine to five job doing the same damn thing. It's almost similar. If you think about it, it's almost similar. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Great. Getting hung up in that, you're getting hung up in that J-O-B. Hey, look, I'm, right now, because I'm not Joe Rogan, I'm still working a nine to five, well, not a nine to five, I'm working a 40 hour week job. Right. And it's a job, it's just over broke. And I'm telling you, man, I you get fed up with it. Are you getting a situation, like I've had some jobs, some some employments that uh i've made you know for this area i've made substantially you know more money than a lot that folks that live around here but you get just as miserable because usually those jobs push you so far physically and mentally and psychologically that you just can't take it anymore um but i mean that's just how it is um, that's why I try to wake up every morning and just be thankful that the good Lord blessed me enough to wake me up. Cause you know, one morning I won't wake up and I know that. I, it's, it's, you know, it's for a, a friend of mine a long time ago, told this to me, but I didn't realize until now. And every time I would look at him, he would always have a smile and a really positive attitude. And his name was like Emily Grimm. And I would always ask him, like, why are you so excited and it's always pleasant and always like happy? And he goes, well, every day above ground is a good day. I was like, wow. yep, yep. Every day north of the dirt. That's what we call it, north of the dirt. Every day north of the dirt is a good day. Yeah. You'd be having the worst day in the world, but I tell you what, if you were dead tomorrow, you'd wish you had yesterday back. So absolutely you know totally yep. so like that literally like you're saying when you were smelling something and take you back to that memory yep. when you say exactly. something take me back to that particular memory is like wow every day you above ground day, man that's i tell you that's why i enjoy that's why i enjoy podcasting because i get an opportunity not only uh to take my listeners you know to a place that a lot of you know, for example i've been fortunate to interview a few hollywood types uh, I know a lot of folks that listen to my podcast personally that would never have an opportunity to actually go to Hollywood and meet these folks or go to California and meet these folks. So that's why I try to bring that experience to them. Um, that's what I tell them. I try to bring my listeners in, you know, from their everyday lives into the world of Wally. That's where world of Wally all came from. So right. that, and I got a bunch of useless knowledge in my head. That's what my wife says. So. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> oh! Tell her she's wrong. 
She's I don't know. I don't know. I got I got a I got a pile. As as the country folks say, I got a pile of useless knowledge just floating around up there. Yeah, I had okay. a friend of mine one time tell me, he said, dude, I would hate to walk around in your head. I said, why is that? He said, man, it would be scary. I said, it probably would be. So, man, yeah, if I, I learn I, nothing from you and people who are listening to you, if they learn nothing from you, they learn at least one thing. And that is definitely how to tell a story. You know, more podcasters, they get stuck on, I need the equipment, I need the software, I need the blah, 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 blah. None of that crap matter if you don't have content. And for you, you have the greatest content ever. You got to be tuned in. I'm on list holding on to every single word you're saying. And it's like you're painting the picture. If you could, a, a, a person, a business owner, entrepreneur, a podcaster, or a videographer, or whoever that person is, if they can learn how to tell a story like you do, oh my God, they will revolutionize their podcast experiencing. Like I said, I don't, I don't, I, I, I know you don't realize it because you don't have you to well, you I'm don't have to give the good Lord all the credit because I'm telling you, I don't know. I, I just, I've always kind of been able to do this. And like I said, I, I wasn't the most popular kid back in the day. I'd catch myself. I'd sit and I'd, I'd write a lot of stuff. Like I'd, I'd write little short stories. And um, I remember that um, in 1992, near the end of 92, like October 1992, um, I surrendered to youth ministry. And I, that very first Christmas, I felt a lot of pressure to, you know, because around Christmas time in, a, in a, a church setting, they like to see like Christmas plays and stuff. So I'm scouring the internet trying to find, you know, the perfect Christmas presentation. And I just can't find it. Uh, and everything seemed dated and stale. So um, I was always a big fan of, um, of West Side Story, um, both the, you know, the movie, the play, everything. And so I took that West Side Story concept and I took the actual story of Jesus and his disciples and, and his last days here on, on earth. And I actually kind of melded the two stories together. And I actually sat and in one sitting in two hours and 15 minutes, I actually wrote a five act play that the youth, well, I, well, I actually had to recruit some youth from another church to help. But I actually, in that short period of time, was able to write completely parts, lined out everything that story and to this day i still have a copy of it somewhere uh, stored on some type of digital media so I don't, it's somewhere i just don't know where it's at but i did that the first two or three christmases that i was in youth ministry because i was always trying to infuse the the real world that young people are involved in with scripture because they look at scripture and say it's just too stale it seems old and dated and I want to show them, you know, just because you live in the world doesn't mean you have to live of the world. So that's why I try to meld the two worlds together. Um, and I guess that's where it all started. I mean, I guess that's where my storytelling actually began um, because I've always enjoyed doing that type of stuff. So like I said, I I just keep plugging away, man. I, like I said, this, this whole World of Wallet podcast started off as me just going to share some crazy stories that I had um, in the cleanest way possible. Because trust me, some of the stories I could tell it, I could Joe Rogan them up pretty good. I mean, it, it'd be pretty rough. I'd, I'd have to put like mature audience advisories on some of the stories if I didn't clean them up a little bit. Right. But, um, and then, like I said, you know, I'm, I'm uh, well, matter of fact, uh, Tuesday, I've had an episode dropping this Tuesday. 
and it's my 50th episode. So, I mean, I'm 50 episodes in, and I think I've actually told like two of my own unique stories. So, all right, man, that's, that's I, I, I am so glad we got connected in this virtual world because yeah. if I am like seriously, all joking aside, I'm so glad we connected because I love the way you tell a story. I'm gonna yeah. take your storytelling secrets and what I learned from here and literally incorporate it into my life. How do I tell a story? Because I know I'm gonna get a lot out of it. So thank you so that much. Good. Thank you. Well, just remember when you write the book, now I need to be fully credited, and oh, uh, I and I'll leave you my address for where you need to send my royalty checks. So. <laughs> I will definitely do that. Definitely do that. You know, but all joking aside, I think you should like, because you're so good at uh, storytelling and your, some of the stories that lessons that has in it, if you can incorporate that into a live lesson, you could hundred percent become a motivational speaker. I am not even kidding. Yeah. I, um, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Ted talk stuff and I've had the opportunity to actually stand before groups of people like i said in youth ministry i've had a chance to stand in front of you know hundreds of youth and tell different stories and different things you know life experience and stuff like that so i mean i i say i would love to do that i don't know that's that'd be another one of those things that seems like would become very mentally and, and physically taxing after a while so you know I, we'll see we'll see you might see me pop up on a TED talk pretty soon. You never know. Yeah, yeah. you never know because you, did you oh. thought in a wireless train we will be having a podcast? Well, what I do is I will make sure I give you full credit when I when I get on my TED talk episode. I'll make sure that you're fully credited with the actual line credits in the description too. So, since right, you man. inspired this possibility, so. I'm telling you, you are going to be killing it because I know you got me as your fan. I'm going to be listening to you. I am not even kidding because I love the way you present the information. And then if you just continue, like just fine tune the things here and there when like, well, how motivational speakers do because the, you got the storytelling part done. Good. And now the next phase is like how you can incorporate a lesson out of it. though other people can relate to it. That's all you need, which is a very small, like 10% of it. If you get that, man, I'm telling you, you are going to kill it. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, definitely going to kill yeah, it, man. Like I said, I, I, I don't know, man. When, I, when the light came on, when, the, when I flipped that switch and the, and the self-confidence level kind of I, – and I, people tell me all the time that knew me years ago, they go, man, what, what's going on with you, man? You, I used to sit in class, you, you wouldn't say a word. And now when I walk in a room, I don't, I don't walk in a room to take a room over. It just seems to happen. I don't, I don't understand how it happens either. It's like a superpower, I guess. I don't know the best way I can describe it. And, uh, and I, for some reason, I'm always, when I get put in a situation, other people want to like push me into like the lead spot. And I'm like, no, I, I want to be a team player. No, no, man, you need to be in charge of this. Where, whatever, okay, man, whatever. If it's gonna get done, if it's gonna get it done, let's get it done, man. So, and why do you feel like that's the case? They always put you in a lead position because you are a leader, whether you believe it or not. Is one of those things. You know, you either have it or you don't. In just this case, you have it. It's a superpower. You just, I mean, I just said that. So that's, I, I can go with that. I, I guess I could be Thor. That'll work. So. Yeah, there you go. You can be a tour. <laughs> all right, man. I just, first of all, uh, once again, I want to say thank you so much for being here, sharing your stories. And they're amazing, unique, and very vivid. And if people, I want to do 
ask you one question, actually two question, two part question. If okay. you can give your younger version, like who is 25 years old right now, a advice, how to move ahead in life, what would that be? My 25 year, okay, so that would have been, I'm 50. That would have been 25 years ago. Okay, at 25, let me, let me set the table for you. At 25, I am, um, yeah, 20, yeah, 25, I'm, uh, I've, been, uh, I've been asked not to come back to one junior college. I finished at a second junior college. I was actually at a senior college, one here within a few miles of here, um, and just, just toiling, just hated it, just despised it. It, it kind of soured me on higher learning as a whole. So I was pretty soured at that point. I also was, uh, at 25, I'd been married for four years, and we had a small child also. And I'm, of course, I'm trying to go to school and working two or three part-time jobs. So the one thing, I guess, if I had to, if me today had to tell my 25-year-old self, this would be, don't be so impulsive. Because back then, I was, I was a hustler. I mean, I was, I mean, when I say hustle, I mean, I, I was doing everything I could to hustle it. You know what I'm talking about. Right. And, and I, if I could have just slowed down and kind of saw the big picture instead of, you know, uh, as they used to say, I was running toward the light, but I didn't realize it was a train. That was my problem. I didn't see the big picture. So I guess if I had to give myself the advice, I would say, slow down, take a breath, see the big picture. Because I was making decisions at 25 that it's taken me 25 years, almost 25, to actually rectify. Like I put myself in situations, you know, especially like financially and stuff. You know, I made some foolish financial decisions. Um, and you got to realize when I was 25 years old, um, and it's not like this now, but they used to just mail you a credit card. Like they didn't, I don't even think they checked your credit. They just mailed your credit card and said, call this number and activate it. And for a struggling young married and, you know, in college, my wife's in college finishing up. We got a small child. I got bills to pay uh, a credit card at that time. Man, I thought that was a godsend. I'm like, thank you, Jesus. But little did I know Lucifer sent it. Jesus didn't send it. It was the devil. <laughs> so, like I said, and I put myself in situations that it's, it took me, you know, 15, 20 years to rectify. So if I had to give myself 25-year-old self advice, it'd be slow down, take a breath, see the big picture, Everything does not have to be done today. You know, have a plan. That's probably my best. I, I had to give myself that. Have a plan. If we would have, if me and my wife would have sat down and had a plan and stuck to it, I mean, I've, like I said, I've, I've had enough opportunities in, in from 20 to 50. I'd probably be a millionaire right now if I'd have just slowed down and saw the big picture. So, you know, everybody says everybody makes a million dollars in their life. Or most folks make a million dollars in their lifetime. The problem is they can't hold on to it. So, 
Very, very true. So part two would be... That's a be... very good question, sir. I'm going to have to write that. I'm going to have to hit some of my guests with that question. Go ahead. <laughs> so part two would be wherever you are right now uh-huh. in your life, all the knowledge that you have, what is going to stop you to get your goals two years from now, if anything? Or will you let anything uh... stop you? I've always, I've always, from even as a young guy, been a uh-huh. goal setter. Um, okay. I don't know. I don't know that I really have a lot of goals at this point. I mean, they're more singular focused goals, like you know, trudging on away until, um, like, my wife is ready to retire from her job, and I want to be in a position to be able to retire, you know, so we can retire together and actually have us time because we've we've had kids in our life literally our entire married life. So I that's a that's a goal, you know, be in a position to be ready. Um, you know, I I to be honest with you, this podcast it started off as a hobby. I I would love to see it kind of blossom into an actual, you know, feasible, like revenue stream. Um, anything that could take me away to where I'm not having to sell my time to somebody, I'm good with. I would love to be in that situation. And it's feasible. Uh, you know, like I said, I've got to have a few breaks. I've got to have the opportunity. I, I've got to have the opportunity to be on more shows like your show, for example. I mean, I've just been exposed to the Mark Kumar universe. So, How you like I, it? Is it cool? And, and I like it. So, yeah, it's a, like I said, man, when in the world would you have ever believed a guy from, you know, from Queens, New York would be talking to a guy from Columbia, Mississippi at, you know, 630 on Central Time, your Eastern, so it's right. later than that for you. So, like I said, I mean, who would have ever thought, you know, uh, uh, I joked with somebody one day, I, I'll never forget when I was, I must've been about 12 years old. I was a big computer guy back in the day. Cause you know, that's what nerdy kids that didn't have friends did. They got on their computer. And I'm talking about, when I say computer, I'm talking about, I had a computer system you've never heard of before. Like I started off on a Commodore and so you have no idea what that is. Commodore was bought up kind of engulfed by some of the larger companies, compacts and stuff like that. But I started off on a Commodore computer, and I, for some crazy reason, you know, we, we didn't have the internet back then. The internet was technically there, but it wasn't the internet. It was bulletin boards and stuff like that. That's how you logged in all over the country. And I logged in one night to a bulletin board in Sacramento, California, and they, they sent this data stream, and I'm sitting there reading it, you know, 11, 12 years old, and, you know, my dad's screaming at me, get off the phone. You're running up the phone mail what get off the phone you've been on the phone for like 20 minutes where are you calling beijing china no dad sacramento california which i wish i'd have called beijing it'd been cheaper so anyway i'm sorry i digress i'm storytelling again so anyway so i get this stream i print it out on my dot matrix printer it took about 30 minutes to print it out and i get to reading it and it's talking about stocks you know, I'm 11 years old. You know, the only thing I know about stocks is I see a stock report on the local news every afternoon, you know, for like local stocks. And I spotted a couple of stocks, Intel for, for is one of them, and Microsoft. And at this point, they're both independent stocks. Like they're not even publicly traded at that point. 
And I remember trying to convince my dad to like, look, dad, I know I'm 11 years old and you might think I'm an idiot, but please, man, just, can I have a hundred dollars to buy some of these stocks? And, you know, he and I look back on it years later and that hundred dollar investment within, well, they, after they started trading publicly in tech, cause the Intel is one I was after. And, um, I, I think we figured it up just a rough estimate that we would have made something like, uh, it was like 690 something thousand dollars on that hundred dollars. So, I mean, you know, I was 11 years old. I don't blame my dad for not giving me a hundred dollars. I was 11. Right. You gonna trust an 11 year old? Man, <laughs> I, don't, I don't, my kids are grown and I still don't trust some of the stuff they do. So, you know, I understand that. He kind of looked back, we laughed about it. You know, it's, you know, three quarters of a million dollars. That's no big deal, you know, for just more poor folks from Mississippi. So, right. you know, but yeah, it's just stuff like that. I mean, it's just crazy, man. Just crazy. You've had story. You, listen, as you were growing up, you had crazy, insane stories like it. Oh, absolutely. Now, you, probably didn't, you probably didn't pass on Intel, but you know, right. I passed on being a, I passed on being a brain surgeon. Uh, uh, <laughs> or you wait. Were you actually going to school to do that? Yeah, I was going to school just, for that. Or did you just want to be a brain surgeon? No, uh, I no, think my parents. You were actually, I was actually going. I was going to school for it for like two years, and yeah. my parents wanted me to become one. But in the middle of the two, after two years or year and a half, I think one or the other, I decided I no longer wanted to be. So switched the plug, and then that was it. <laughs> and you probably ended up going into like tech or something that really yes, took them up. You're such a disappointment to your parents. Uh, all right, so let me, and let me guess. Let's let's make the story even better. You, both sure. your parents were physicians, also, right? Nope, not at all. Oh, I think say that would have been like the dagger in the heart if they'd have both been physicians and then you backed out on it. So then I would have had no option but to go because <laughs> I would have heard it from both sides. Yeah, I'm uh, never even a doctor, lawyer, all that, that stuff never even passed my. It's like no way. Right. Yeah, man, you got something better planned for you. The God, the good man has something better planned for you. You just don't even know it. I just told that's you to become, become a motivational speaker, man. You're going to be yeah. killing it. That's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. Like I said, I, my goals are more singularly focused now. Right. Uh, my, my priorities are a lot bigger now. I, I, certain priorities that, you know, things that I want to make sure get done, like, you know, still make sure my family's okay and you know, sure. stuff like that. And like I said, it's, uh, goals that I had when I was 15, 18, 20 years old, just pipe dream type stuff. I mean, uh, you know, the funny thing was when I was actually in college, uh, I don't know, 19, 20 years old, I I had a crazy dream. I'd like to grow up and be somebody like Donald Trump. And I'm like, Jesus, can you imagine? I'd have an aneurysm and die if I'd have grown up being Donald Trump. So I told him that dude catches it from everywhere. But back then, you know, I was, I, I kind of, revered him because of you know he was a real estate guy and you know he was you know he you know he was a phoenix kind of guy you know came up from the ashes and you know burned out bankruptcy came back from the ashes again i'm like man this dude he's just but like i said not even the folks so funny is i took oral communications in college which is you know speech class right. and the teacher um gave us two options we could get up and talk about five totally random off the wall topics that she gave you or you could put together a theme of speeches 
that you created. Well, I jumped all over that. I did five themed speeches on Donald Trump and his development of his, you know, his, his empire. And, um, and I'll never forget that my wife, I'll, the night that he was elected president, my wife, talking about a memory coming back, because my wife actually was in that same class with me. So she heard this as a witness. I finished my final speech about him by saying, um, you know, and I kind of gave like a, like a synopsis of all of them, kind of a summary type there. And I said, and you know, and one day it wouldn't shock me to see him, you know, possibly in uh, some form of office, maybe even the presidency. And that's how I finished my series of speeches. Now you got to realize that was in 1991. Yeah, 91. That was long before. You see what I'm saying? So, Maybe I'm a prophet too. I don't know. So, <laughs> I don't have any vibe on what the next election looks like. So don't ask. Right. And don't call Vegas because I'm not, I don't have a good line on that. So <laughs> cool, man. All right, man. Thank you so much for being here once again. And uh, before we end the show, I want to give you opportunity to let people know how they can get in touch with you or wherever else you want to share. Absolutely. Like I said, guys, my name is William Wally. I've had an absolute blast. I want to thank Mark Kumar. He is one of the coolest podcast hosts that I've ever had an opportunity to engage with. And I hope that you and I get an opportunity to uh, speak again. You know, maybe you come on my show or I come back on this show, whatever. So um, you guys can reach out to me. I'm on Facebook under William Wally. I'll be the very good looking ball headed guy on the profile picture. Uh, you'll see, I have all my personal information out there. So you'll see a Columbia, Mississippi under the name. So that'll be me. There's not two William Wallace in the state of Mississippi. So um, also I have a Facebook page. It's World of Wally. Uh, very easy to search and find. And I'm on Instagram at World of Wally underscore official. All right. Thank you so much. All right, man. You... Thank you, brother. I have had an absolute blast.